The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. You know that feeling when you're expecting a big bill to come and it comes in less than you'd expected, or you get a refund from your energy company, like so many of us have been having recently. I think this is sort of analogous to what's happened to the government's finances, as they suddenly have more money than they previously thought. Or do they? Because these are figures around borrowing that did come in, showing the government borrowed less than had been expected for the three months from April to July, or at least the budget deficit was smaller around £11 billion, uh, smaller than the OBR's forecast had been in March. So that gives a little bit of extra breathing room uh, to those who are controlling the government purse. Um, the revised figures for July also mean that the UK debt never quite reached the 100% of GDP level, which will be exciting for some people who like to crow about such things uh, when they happen as well. Um, the question, though, that of course now is being asked is, ooh, we have some more money. Can we have some tax cuts? <laughs> Uh, and that's some of this political speculation that's starting to happen around these news coming. It's not all good news, though. The revisions uh, won't do much to ease the broader concerns about the pace of how much the UK is having to borrow and the particular fact that the Britain relies much more on borrowing that's inflation-linked, which means mm. as inflation goes up, they have to repay more. And actually, the debt interest that the UK government had to pay in July was almost £8 billion, which is a record high for any July uh, reassuring. Uh, but perhaps there'll be some in Westminster who'll be looking into the details of these figures and thinking, oh, wonder what I could do with that. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. Yes, I, th- I think debt has just hit, hit a mere 98% of GDP rather than... Oh, 90%. a trifling 90, <laughs> 98.5%. 98.5%. I'm, I stand corrected. And interesting, a good bit of those revenues are from fiscal drag, which is tax thresholds not keeping up with inflation. And wages, of course, are currently rising at a record pace. But income tax thresholds are going up by precisely zero. And that in itself is netting the government quite a lot of money. And I guess the question, the political question is, will people notice? Because traditionally, this is quite a good Mm. way of governments raising revenue. My least favourite kind of drag, I think. (laughs) It's not nearly as much fun as other (laughs) other drag, is it? Uh, Anyway, let's move on to an interesting business story, which has also got some quite interesting political implications for the UK's uh, post-Brexit place in the world. Stephen, are you are you a keen video gamer? I'm not currently, although I have been at various points of my life, and I like to dip back into it when I suppose. I mean, you know, if you're trying to escape from the world for a while, it's good good way to do it. Yeah, well, I, I played games a lot when I was a kid, but I've, I've sort of grown out of it. Although I had, I had a slight pandemic, it was one of the things I did in the pandemic. Mm. One of the highly unproductive things I did uh, during COVID. Well, that's been good for some including video games makers. <laughs> oh, lovely pivot. There we are. Well, whether or not you play games, there's been a massive development today in the £60 billion takeover by Microsoft of games giant Activision Blizzard. Now, while neither of these companies are British, the deal first mooted more than 18 months ago is currently blocked all around the world 
by the UK regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority. And it's become a big political issue with Microsoft's president this year saying that his confidence in the UK as a place to open for business has been shaken. Uh, And in the rare move this morning, the CMA said it would open a new deal probe after Microsoft made a significant change to the deal. We're going to hear from the regulator just a little bit later in the programme. But first, let's speak to our tech editor, Nate Langson, and our legal reporter, Catherine Gemmel. Now, Nate, just talk us through um, the inverted commas new deal. Well, the, the suggestion here is that Microsoft would pass over the streaming rights to Ubisoft uh, for the games that are released by Activision Blizzard over the next 15 years. And this is central to the CMA's initial problem with the deal, which is that it gave Microsoft too much potential power over the future of the game streaming market, which right now is very small, but long term could be absolutely massive. And that was the concern. The news is that Ubisoft will take a huge part of that uh, on on, uh, on its shoulders, streaming-wise, and allow Microsoft to get on with providing streaming services everywhere else. And this doesn't, and this, and, and Europe is excluded from this, though. European Economic Area, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the rest of the world excluding the European Economic Area. Yeah. Um, Catherine, why should we be talking so much, or why has there been so much political focus on a corporate merger? It seems to have become an absolutely massive deal for even those outside of this industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, one of the reasons why it's become such a big, massive deal is because it is a $69 billion deal, right? It's one of the biggest tech deals of all time if it eventually goes through. Um, so there has been a lot of focus on it. And, you know, um, I think that the UK post-Brexit have got these new powers to look at its own um, mergers itself outside of the EU. And it's one of um, it's the biggest deal that the UK has gone out on its own with. So in April, originally, they vetoed the deal. Um, and then a, couple, a month later, the EU said actually the deal can go through and had a different analysis of it. So there has been that divergence there, I think, which has put a lot of eyes on the deal. I mean, people also care about the deal because, you know, the UK has a massive gaming market. Um, we've got loads of gaming um, gamers here um, and this deal will mean that Microsoft will be able to um, own a ma- like massive games like the blockbuster Call of Duty shooter game, which is one of the most popular games of all time. Mm. Also be able to take on mobile games like Candy Crush, uh, World of War. Warcraft and that sort of thing and it'll be able to make those games um, available on its Game Pass which is like the Netflix sort of subscriber um, function for games so this is this would be so lucrative for Microsoft and this is really why they want to get this through and to jump past the regulatory hu- hurdles. Nate how much of a how much of a concession is this because I, I understand that quite a lot of this is, is all about kind of how the cloud market will develop in the future and that's really an unknown isn't it so do you think Microsoft will be will be disappointed at this or, or is it is it kind of okay I think Microsoft will be happy that they've got a chance of making it happen at all at this point I think the fact that Microsoft had ruled out um, selling off Call of Duty but has agreed that this is a way forward suggests that it doesn't stop their overall plan from taking place in which case I think Microsoft's probably quite happy with it I think they would have been happier to have kept all of this to itself but the reality is is that the long-term impact of this is probably relatively minor as far as Microsoft's concerned so uh, I imagine they're fairly happy. Catherine, what about the the reputation of the CMA and all this? You mentioned the slight awkwardness of the fact that they blocked it and then the European Union approved it and then the after legal processes in the US, eventually it was also cleared in the US too, leaving the CMA out in a bit of a limb. I mean, yeah, um, 
Obviously, their decision differed to the EU. I mean, the UK and the US had similar views on this. The US FTC um, sued to block the deal, but there they have a judicial process and the courts um, you know, overruled that and didn't, weren't on their side with that. So it did leave the CMA out on its own. I mean, I think reputational-wise, I think that it does show that the CMA you know, are willing to be tough on these big tech deals. They've said for you know years now that they um, are looking at the tech industry and that there'd been some regret that massive tech deals have gone through, you know, for the likes of Facebook when um, it bought WhatsApp and Instagram um, and that they didn't you know, look at that more closely and think about the future competition concerns um, at play. So I think reputationally, you know, some may think that the CMA has um, gone above and beyond, but actually I think it also shows that you know, they're willing to stick, stick to their guns and go after these big companies and deals. Really, the uh, Competition Market Authority has really been thrust into the global limelight. Fascinating, really. And you spoke to the CMA uh, earlier, didn't you, Stephen? Uh, it was the uh, Sarah Cardle from the CMA. Yeah, so there are, there are actually two developments that we're announcing today. The first, importantly, is that we have finalised the legal order that confirms our prohibition decision in relation to the original Microsoft uh, deal. And then, as you say, separately, Microsoft have announced today a new restructured deal, which is uh, substantially different from the deal that was previously on the table. And the key difference is that this time, Microsoft will not be acquiring any of the cloud streaming rights in relation to Activision games for the next 15 years. Now, you might remember that the main reason uh, why we blocked the deal originally was because we were concerned about the impact on competition in this important new market for cloud gaming. Uh, Instead of Microsoft acquiring those rights in relation to cloud streaming, those rights will separately be sold by Activision to an independent gaming company, Ubisoft. So that creates quite a different transaction for us to review. And today we're announcing uh, the start of a new investigation where we'll consider the impact of that deal on competition. What will this deal need to prove to you for you to be able to approve it? So we have been clear all along that it is absolutely critical to keep this new uh, developing market for cloud gaming open to effective competition to support innovation to support choice. We had a real concern previously that Microsoft would be able to control the way that that market was going to develop. What we see with this new deal, and we will have to test it carefully through our review, but what we see from the announcement today is that rather than Microsoft being able to control how those cloud streaming rights are used, uh, that control will shift to an independent company. And Ubisoft will be able, for example, to enter into all sorts of licensing deals with other cloud streaming providers, supporting importantly different kinds of business models, for example, multi-grain subscription services, or enabling cloud service providers to offer their content over a non-Windows operating system. So we will be testing carefully whether that does deliver on keeping that market open to competition, supporting innovation and choice. The CMA and its initial assessment of the previous offer from Microsoft had differed from regulators in the European Union and the outcome of uh, the decision in the United States as well on this deal. Has the CMA bowed to international pressure to get this deal approved? The, uh, The regulator faced quite significant criticism from the parties over its rejection of the original offer. So the CMA stands by our original decision. And as I say, we have actually confirmed the legal effect of that original prohibition decision today. We have been very clear to Microsoft uh, when it raised the possibility of restructuring the deal that any restructure would need to fully and comprehensively address our concerns. It would need to go through a new review, a new investigation 
that's what we are launching today and we will assess the impact of that new deal on competition, making sure that we protect UK gamers and keep that market open to competition. How long should that investigation take? So the first phase of that investigation uh, would be due to be completed by the 18th of October. Uh, We obviously have a lot of information that we already have through our prior investigation, so we'll be moving forward with this as quickly and as efficiently as we can, but making sure that we have a full opportunity to test this deal and hear from third parties. Now, Microsoft's president, Brad Brad Smith, had described it as being bad for Britain on your original blocking of the deal. What sort of dialogue have you had with the company since then that has led them to submit this restructured offer? So Microsoft uh, indicated that they were interested in exploring a restructured deal to address our concerns. And as I say, we have been very clear with them that in order to do that, they would need to come up with something that was substantially different and fully and comprehensively addressed our competition concerns. The announcement from Brad Smith today indicates he believes they have done that. And obviously, it will be for us to review that through the investigation that we're starting today. Has the CMA been damaged by this? I think the CMA is in an incredibly positive position, actually, because we have been clear that we are protecting competition in the UK. That has forced Microsoft to rethink the deal structure and come up with a deal that they believe addresses our concerns. So I think it puts the CMA and the UK in a very good position. What's the difference for UK consumers with this restructured offer? So we will need to test this uh, very carefully, obviously, through our investigation. Uh, but it appears that this creates the possibility to really open up this market. And certainly looking at the statement from Ubisoft today, they have been clear that this creates new opportunities to bring cloud gaming to a much wider range of users and players. Will the rights for the games in question being different in the EEA and the rest of the world, is that something that consumers of these products are likely to see a difference over? I don't think it will have any impact on the the user experience. Uh, Microsoft have been clear that they want to continue to honour the commitments that they have given to the European Commission, but the user experience should be unaffected. What's the message that uh, politicians should take away from this as well? Your organisation has taken on a much greater regulatory role since Brexit because so much of the competition policy was being uh, set and determined out of Brussels previously. Does the CMA need more resources to be able to make big decisions like this in the future? The CMA is very well resourced to take on these kind of decisions. And the message really to everybody is that the CMA will review every transaction that we consider carefully, thoroughly, objectively, and we will make sure that we protect competition in the market for the UK consumers. Is the UK a good place for tech companies to be doing business from a regulatory point of view? I think the UK is a very good place for tech companies to be doing business, yes. That was Sarah Cardle, the Chief Executive of the Competition and Markets Authority, speaking to me a little bit earlier. Um, Catherine, this, I suppose, illustrates the, that conversation, the, the difficulties that regulators have in this area as well, as they're essentially trying to make a way for themselves, as the, to the point you made earlier, uh, in the post-Brexit world. Um, is this something that's easy for the UK to do? Is it well-placed to, to lead on regulation? I think it is well placed to to lead on regulation. I mean, um, the UK's CMA is um, um, up there now with the FTC, with the European um, Commission, um, with Australia's regulator as well. Um, and I think that the, you know um, that now it's got its place there with the top three. It'll stay. And I think that the CMA, um, you know, it does. Yeah, I think it stands up there with the top regulators.
Nate, how, where does this leave the um, UK games industry? Obviously, n- neither of these are, are directly British companies, but the UK games industry is, is pretty significant. It's a, it's a big player, isn't it? It's, it's a massive player. A lot of the big games have originated from um, from Britain in some form. Um, I, I often think it gets overlooked at the central role that the UK and Scotland in particular actually played in Call of Duty. Uh, sorry, not Call of Duty, my apologies. Grand Theft Auto, you know, another one of the biggest game franchises in the world, came out of Scotland originally. Uh, we have towns and, and places like Leamington Spa that are not household names to most people when it comes to gaming, and yet huge numbers of games come out of there. Sheffield as well. It's it's a it's a surprisingly huge market, and we have and we have excellent talent. But increasingly, a lot of the attractiveness is going to other countries. Canada, for one, is is you know very attractive to, to game developers. So we have to we have to try. But I also think there's something of an irony to 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 what's happening here because within the last 24 hours we also saw Arm filing for its uh, long-awaited IPO. And on the one hand, we have people saying that the UK is not an attractive place for for a listing like Arm, one of our big British companies of history. And at the same time, we have a regulator like the CMA that can block one of the biggest tech deals in history, um, not that long after forcing Meta to sell Giphy, for instance. So it's, there's, there's, there's this really interesting dynamic that the UK has right now that I think is fascinating, as it is ironic. But does that speak to some of what the criticism we heard from Brad Smith about this essentially being not a great place to do business if you're in that industry, given those messages you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a difference between going to, you know, the capital markets and, and having an IPO and being a place to attract consumers and keep people playing games. But I do think that at the same time, you've got on the one hand, uh, the ability to block global deals and at the same time not be attractive um, for, for investors, for, for other things. Catherine, how do you think the CMA have have come out of all of this? I know it hasn't quite finished yet, but it does feel feel like it's working its way to, to the end. Do, do you think they, they they've come out looking impressive? I mean, I think that they've come out to show that you know that they have got these powers um, under the UK laws and that they're willing to use them. I mean, I think the message that it will send to boardrooms and CEOs around the world is that the CMA is one of the organisations that you should be definitely keeping an eye on, and I think that that's something that we've seen over the the past couple of years, especially. Okay, Catherine Gamble, thank you so much for joining us, our tech rep- our legal reporter rather, and our tech editor Nate Langston as well. Um, great to get your views on the day that we've had that decision from the Competition and Markets Authority around the Microsoft uh, reviewing the new offer or the new revised version of the deal for Microsoft to take over the games maker Activision Blizzard. Yeah, interesting, fascinating deal, which has been rumbling on for more than uh, a year and a half now, blocked by uh, the UK. Well, let's talk about the next general election now. Scotland's 59 seats will have an outsized influence uh, in the UK's next election. The SNP, of course, has dominated politics there for more than a decade. But as the police investigation into its finances continues, its poll rating has been heading rapidly southwards. And of course, that presents an opportunity for Labour to win back some of the 40 seats that it's lost in 2015. A good haul of Scottish MPs are seen as being near essential to securing a majority at Westminster. Our political reporter Ellen Milligan has been writing about all of this for Bloomberg. We started by asking her about the current state of the SNP. Well, the SNP has arguably had more of a tumultuous period this last six months than Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party. 
it kind of all started late last year when they lost the Supreme Court um, appeal um, to grant them another um, referendum on independence in Scotland. Um, Then earlier this year, um, the UK government vetoed Scotland's gender recognition reforms. That started to dent the SNP's performance in the polls. And then out of nowhere, Nicola Sturgeon, who's led the party for nearly a decade, Scotland's first minister, resigned, which resulted in quite a messy leadership race which exposed all the cracks in the SNP that have been papered over by a united position on independence this last decade. Um, And as you say, this police probe, there's been arrests in the last few months. Nicola Sturgeon's been arrested, her husband, the SNP's treasurer. No charges have been brought, um, but it's a real dark cloud hanging over the party. And of course, disarray in the SNP presents an opportunity for other parties who want to try and muscle in on Scotland's political scene, most importantly, of course, Labour. What is Labour's ambition in Scotland running up to the next election? Ian Starmer doesn't think he could get a majority um, without making significant gains in Scotland. Um, We've spoken to some Labour strategists who say that they're looking at 15 to 16 seats, but actually many people think that's quite a conservative estimate and think that they are on track to get more. They currently only hold one seat in Scotland and they used to dominate Scotland as well, um, particularly Glasgow um, and that central belt um, uh, along Scotland as well. Um, and and the challenge um, will significantly decrease in England and Wales um, if they do better in Scotland to get that overall majority. So that's why it's really important for them. And they've not actually, the Labour Party has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland also. So what's the big hurdle then for the party in winning back some of those seats that they've lost progressively over the past number of elections? They have a unique challenge in Scotland in that they aren't even the main opposition party in Scotland. Labour has not had a presence there really since 2007. And so they're having to reintroduce themselves to the public, to the voters up there. You know, there's a whole generation of voters up there, younger people who don't know Labour at all. Um, so that's a real challenge for them. And also what the SNP are really going going on um, and a key part of their campaign is that Labour aren't offering much of an alternative to the Conservatives. Um, the Conservative government is is pretty unpopular in Scotland. You've seen the Scottish Conservatives' popularity dent as well over the last year. Um, and Brexit was incredibly unpopular up there. So they're saying, you know, Labour doesn't really, Labour Conservatives, there's not really much of a difference. And of course, Labour don't support independence either. They're a unionist party. So those are the kinds of the biggest hurdles that Labour have. But it is that reintroduction point and whether whether they have enough time between now and the next election to introduce themselves to the public there again. Ellen, in your conversations with people in Scotland looking at the election, I mean, how central is independence to people's voters' choices or are they more concerned about the perhaps more bread and butter issues of cost of living or health care? The three things that came up the most was, uh, indeed, the cost of living. I mean, this is something that's impacting the the whole of the UK, the mortgage crisis, um, the inflation really eating into people's like grocery grocery budgets, for example, rent soaring. Those issues are um, really prevalent in Scotland, just as much as they are in England. Brexit is something that comes up a lot. You know, a lot of young people I spoke to said, why can't we have what Northern Ireland has, where you can get an Irish passport and a British passport? Now, of course, that's nothing to do with Brexit. That's 
to do with the Good Friday Agreement, but they would love that kind of free freedom of movement um, that you know young people b- before Brexit had in terms of studying and being able to travel more freely. And um, so that comes up a lot. But yes, as you say, independence does come up a lot, especially areas like Glasgow, where independence is particularly popular. You know, support for independence has, has remained quite resilient um, over the last few years, despite, you know, the, the dent in support for the S&P hasn't really been mirrored with a dent in support of independence. So that's something that really plays on people's minds still. What I would say is quite a lot of people have said we would eventually like independence, but we don't think now is necessarily the right time to call another, another referendum. It's hard to think about what the next election is going to look like in Scotland without wondering what the fate of the SNP will be. Can the party bounce back from this? Could they surprise us, uh, given that we have a reasonably long road to go before the vote actually happens? It's hard to imagine them doing as well as they have in recent elections, because that was in large part driven by Nicola Sturgeon um, and her leadership. Um, and they've done so incredibly well in, in, in the last elections that to, to match that um a year a year off from the election when they, when their support has dented it, it is hard to imagine however they i can see a situation where they lose some seats but are still the largest party in scotland for example that the polls still show that they are the most popular party in scotland i think a lot of it comes down to their messaging um, comparing Labour to the Conservatives, but also if Hamza Youssef can actually provide a viable plan for independence, something that's convincing, something that seems realistic, I think that is a real challenge for them and they haven't really come up with that plan yet. Well, that was our political reporter, Ellen Milligan, writing all about uh, the Scottish situation. Fascinating fight at the next general election. Her piece called Labour's Hopes of Taking UK Power Could Come Down to This City is on the Bloomberg Terminal and the website. Glasgow, a particularly interesting fight at the next general election. Labour strategists hoping perhaps to take uh, 15 or maybe even 20 seats of the 40 that they lost back in 2015. So that'll be really a really interesting fight. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.